The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go Beyond Reality. Welcome to the program. It's Beyond Reality as uh, things kind of go a bit crazy around us. This is stuff that, that I don't think anybody could have foreseen, first of all, but secondly, has experienced before. This is uncharted territory. This, and I hate to use 9-11 comparisons because there is really no comparison to what happened on 9-11. However, that was uncharted territory too, but this is extending to all parts of the country and in fact all parts of the world. And it makes it a much more difficult, quote-unquote, enemy to fight. I just hope everybody's being safe. I hope everybody is doing the best they can to follow the recommendations of our health officials and our health authorities and making a real effort to stop this thing as quickly as we can. Because as, as I posted on my, uh, my fan page yesterday, I, I posted a, a, a thing saying, you know, at what point does the cure become worse than the disease? And this is not to make light of this disease at all. I don't mean to do that at all. But what I am worried about is that the economic consequences, not just here in the United States, but in many parts of the world, especially the poorer parts of the world, when the other world economies, the United States, Europe, China even, Japan, when those economies become uh, troubled, those other parts of the world suffer the most. And we could see suffering on a mass scale. After the virus is long gone because of the economic consequences. So be thinking about that. The sooner we can get through this and the sooner we can get our economy back to normal, the better everyone's going to be. And I know that sounds so obvious, but it's important to say it. So on that note, welcome to the program, everyone. We're going to be talking uh, about uh, a topic that's really quite fascinating. Lisa Smart has been on the program before, and she is going to be talking about the final words project. Lisa is a linguist and a researcher, and after her own experience with her father's passing, she became very, very curious about the things that people say as they're approaching that moment, death. So she put together a study and started to reach out to people to see if she could determine if there was a pattern or if there was some insight and and has done a really great job of doing that. And this conversation will not only be very interesting, but it'll also be very inspiring, I think, because many of us have had this experience with loved ones as we've been with them when they've passed. The things they say don't, and and I'm not talking about right at the moment, because that is important, obviously, but also in days leading up to that moment. We've all probably experienced a loved one talking about seeing people that you don't see when they're approaching the time of death, having conversations with people that you don't see, talking about going to places that you don't even know what those places are. These are things that everybody has has experienced, most people anyway, with a with the passing of a friend or a loved one or whatever it happens to be. So this will be a really fascinating conversation. So Lisa will come on in just a few moments. Uh, with that, let's go to break. And when we come back, we will bring in our guest again. Tonight, we're talking about the Final Words Project with Lisa Smart, a returning guest to the program right here on Beyond Reality. Don't go away. 
Looking for our guest's book? Go to Amazon.com slash shop slash JVJTaps. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Our guest tonight is returning to the program. Lisa Smart has been with us before. She's a linguist and a researcher, and she's founder of the Final Words Project. And we're going to talk about what people's final words reveal to us about consciousness. And of course, when we talk about final words, we're talking about the words that precede death. Lisa, welcome back to Beyond Reality. It's great to have you with us again. Great to be here tonight. Thank you. You know, for people who missed your discussion with us, which I think may have been... Geez, a couple of years ago now. I don't, I don't exactly know, but I know it was a while ago. Um, talk to us a little bit about what the Final Words Project is to begin with, and then we'll get into some detail. Sure. Um, the Final Words Project, I established it back in 2014, and the whole idea is I was curious about what people's final words are and what they might uh, tell us about what happens to us as we die. Do, does consciousness survive? And um, and these questions evolved because as my father was dying, I noticed some very peculiar and compelling things uh, that he said and saw in his, his last few weeks. And since I was a linguist, I was just intrigued by the language. So the Final Words Project, what I've done now in, I guess it's been, gosh, it's almost, it's about five and a half years, I've been collecting people's final words. And uh, I think I have about 2,000 utterances now, representing about 120 people. Wow. And I just looked at them and looked at the patterns, and indeed, patterns have emerged. And I've also been very, very fortunate to have been mentored through the project um, by Dr. Raymond Moody, who coined the term near-death experience in 1975. Wow. Um, Do you mind if we talk a little bit about your personal experience with your father? Oh, no, absolutely. So tell tell us what happened. And I also find it very interesting when you talk about, quote-unquote, final words, you're talking about words that actually span maybe in some cases a couple of weeks or longer. Yes. Yes, you hit the nail on the head. Because in truth, um, many people in those very final days the language is very erratic. Like they might just be completely unresponsive and then out of nowhere, they may say a few words. But really the most active, uh, you know, the most language that I was able to gather and track was, as you said, over maybe the two-week period or the 10 days before dying. It's rare. Well, I shouldn't say rare, but people, you know, when we see those final words, you know, those books, those collections of people's final words, and they're so articulate, they say these really elaborate things, you know, well, a lot of those are actually probably fictionalized, because, um, you know, famous people saying these long statements, so yeah, it's (laughs) probably in most cases unlikely, but, um, you know, people do say, you know, my father said, thank you, to my mother was his last words. I love you. Thank you. Mm. But um, what you said is absolutely accurate. That that when I talk about final words, I'm really talking about the period of um, from the moment, you know, right at the moment of death to about three weeks before someone dies. So 
from what I understand about your experience with your father, which really led you on this path, he was a, a, a skeptic and he started to say things that you would not have expected from somebody as pragmatic and, and, and maybe as skeptical about things like religion uh, that your, your father said. So can you share some of that with us? Yes, um, and that's what led me to this work. You know, if my father was some woo-woo person who talked about spirits, I may not have been so drawn to doing this research. My dad was um, a Ph.D. psychologist, very analytical, scientifically oriented, and he was also um, he was a, a New Yorker. He was Jewish. Uh, I'm Jewish, of course, uh, but he would always talk about being a gastronomical Jew, and he would joke and he'd say, you know, my idea of God is a corned beef sandwich and coleslaw. <laughs> you know, you know, that's where God stops for me. So he had, you know, he was a really down to earth. Um, kind of salt of the earth guy who was also, you know, very um, skeptical about things. And I always had a little bit more inclination. Um, you know, I was a little bit more open-minded and he would always tease me about it. So in those final weeks as he was dying, he started looking around the room, which I've now come to find is not, this is relatively common. He would look around the room, especially like upward towards the ceiling. He started talking about angels being in the room with him which completely surprised me. And um, and then three days before he died, he announced three days left, wow. three days left. The angels say enough, only three days left. And then, indeed, three days later, he passed on. Wow. So that was part, yeah, that was part of what really caught my, caught my interest. You know, I, I have had um, some of those experiences personally with uh, parents well, and grandparents, and the yeah. fact that you just said he would look to the ceiling or to the corner of the room, th- I share that experience because that's what yeah. I saw as well. And and some and we're going to get into a, much more detail about this, but I can't help but comment about the fact that um, my not my father I didn't have this experience with my father, but I had it with my mother. She was seeing angels and she was seeing people yeah. that she that have predeceased her. And mm-hmm. talking to them at times, mm-hmm. and and mm-hmm. and and being a little bit um, not necessarily irritated, but frustrated that I couldn't <laughs> see them as well. Exactly. And in many cases, she was looking up into the corner of the room. So mm-hmm. that's fascinating to me. Yeah, you know, it was so you know what's so exciting about doing this kind of final words work, and anytime you collect data or do anything relatively uh, scientifically, or you, or you start examining the. Um, experiences of many people, you know, you had an experience sort of in isolation and privately, and I had an experience, and until you start gathering data and talking to other people, you don't realize that some of these things are patterns, right? They're not isolated I- events. So um, from the moment my father went into the dying process, I, I wrote down everything he said, and it turned out that so many of the patterns that I saw in his language that some of them seemed bizarre or unique. I've come to find are, you know, some of them are actually even universal or relatively universal as I'm getting language samples from around the world. So the, the thing about looking up at the ceiling and, and pre-deceased relatives, I mean, this is known in the medical community to really be kind of a precursor to someone dying. It's an indication that death is imminent when people start talking. And I mean, they, from the research I've done of other people as well as from myself, it's, and we're looking at about 70 to 80% of people have experiences of talking to and seeing predeceased relatives at the bedside. But this information has not been that 
well-researched just only recently, so people don't know that this is going on at bedsides everywhere. So it seems like a unique experience at the time, but these are actually patterns we've come to discover that are more prevalent than you would think. So what what prompted you to write this down? Is it is your training as a linguist that made you decide, hey, I want to record these things my father is saying right now because it's it's curious to me. Yep, that's that's pretty much how it was. And I think, you know, um, writing things down. I'm also a writer, and 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 you having a pencil in my hand is one of my coping mechanisms, right? You know, all those times when my heart gets broken or anything, I pull out a paper and pencil and I write things down. That's my coping mechanism. So that's partly it, and partly I've just been trained that when you hear language language that's unique or interesting, to write it down. I mean, that's how I was trained is to study language. So what happened is um, my father died over a three-week period. It was relatively relatively quick. And, um, and when I heard that something was wrong with him, it seemed like he might be dying, I, I came right over to the house. And, um, and he apparently, the night before my mother told me, he walked out the front door in his underwear at midnight, um, not a characteristic thing my father would do and it was a January night and he walked down the street and he started talking to the police about this big art show and he had these art boxes or the excuse me boxes full of art that he was bringing to the art show and so as soon as I heard about him talking about these sort of bizarre things I thought you know what I want to track what my dad talks about as he's dying and, you know, admittedly, over the years, like if I was at Barnes & Noble or something and I saw a book about people's final words, I was always kind of intrigued by it. You know, what do people say? And are they seeing things? Are they privy to another reality as they're dying? And I think I was always intrigued by that. But it was really because I loved language. I was used to writing down words. You know, one thing as a linguist we're taught is if you're in a foreign country, and you're not familiar with the language, of course, you write it down and you look for the patterns to try to understand what the, how the language is constructed. So in a way, while my father was dying, I literally felt like I was in a foreign territory. And I just thought, well, let me just write down his language and see what patterns emerge. And really, to my surprise, patterns did emerge. And through the process, sort of my own perspective about consciousness changed. The curiosities that you experienced when you were hearing these words from your father, and they were words f- that you wouldn't have expected to hear from your father, which always comes with a bit of a um, a weird edge to it when, when you hear, especially a parent, say something that you don't expect them to say. Um, did that put a spiritual curiosity into you as well, or was it purely linguistic? Oh, absolutely spiritually. Um, because, you know, I, I, I would... I don't think I'm the only one in the world who finds the idea of maybe that there are angels comforting, you know, right. <laughs> something very comforting. Yeah. And I've only been kind of divided as a person. There was a part of me. I mean, if I wanted something and needed something or I was scared or afraid, I was definitely, I would definitely pray. I mean, hey, come on, what have I got to lose, right? Sure. But I also have always been really analytical and had sort of a skeptical part of me. So... When my father started describing angels in the room, and he was just had this kind of peace about him, and he, you know, things were coming out of his mouth. Some of them were very confusing, but they were also some of them were very poetic and so forth. So, 
you know, the idea that he was talking um, about angels and and he was talking about this green dimension and the, you know, there was this other dimension that was very green he was telling me about. And I thought, what, what is going on with my papa? You know, what is he seeing? Is this all a fantasy or is there maybe something real to this? And, you know, the traditional argument is, you know, if someone's a believer in angels and so forth and they're dying, then it's well like, you know, they're hallucinating angels because they want to and that's right. their belief system. Right. But when my father, who is a hardcore skeptic, you know, he loved to bet on the horses and the ponies, you know. But he didn't talk about ponies and horses very much. You know, he was talking <laughs> about angels. And it was just like, wow. You know, this is a man who uh, would put all his money on a pony but would never bet that there were angels, you know. So... So that was really intriguing, and it was also comforting to me. Though I mean, it was of course I was grief stricken. My father and I were very close, but it was also comforting because I saw that this was a man who all my life was really afraid of dying and death. And I, as a matter of fact, a, a couple of days before he died, he actually was able to speak well enough to talk to his secretary, who is he was really close to, and he said, "You know, Alice, this is very interesting." And I've never done this before. Hmm. And I was, and I thought it was one of the things that made me intrigued. I thought, what is this, this, you know, what does he mean this? What's the this he's talking about? And so, but there seemed to be something almost spiritual about him saying that because there's no fear in his voice. And there was really a sense of kind of wonder and intrigue. And I thought, wow, this is not what I thought death would look like on my father. Was your father under any the influence of any medications at that point? Yeah, he definitely was, and 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 um, he was taking morphine, and um, and it, well, I, I think I can say this that my father was um, my one of my relatives brought him marijuana brownies. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> he had never had those in his life, but you know, it reduced some of the pain. And I I remember one day I came in to look and check on. My father and I said, "How you doing, Papa?" He said, "Let's see, orange juice, morphine, marijuana. I'm fine, honey." <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, definitely there was some drugs. But here's the deal about that. You know, when I first started this research, I said to Dr. Moody, "Aren't we going to have to control for medication?" I mean, you know, because obviously meds affect people's consciousness and sure. so forth. And he said, "Well, here's the deal." If there's something that's really a universal, it's going to appear across all illnesses and all meds. So you really don't need to control. So what he said, like, is with the near-death experience, if you start seeing it appear across all, you know, across all medications and, and illnesses, then, then it, there, it seems like it's a universal or at least there's some pattern that's emerging. So he said for this first, I mean, this was also kind of like a pilot study. It was very informal. I did not, um, you know, I did not work with an academic institution. It was an informal research project. And he said, you know, this is really just a pilot. So don't worry right now about controlling. And the fact is, you know, if, if, if you're looking at the language of 10 people and they all have different illnesses and they're all on different meds, but they all have the same language patterns. You know, but they have different medications and illnesses. Then, right there, there seems to be hmm, maybe maybe this is a common pattern across medications and illnesses. 
I think the fact that you uh, pointed out that your father was not someone to talk about angels or even concern himself with angels throughout his entire life to then be seeing angels, I think that says a lot. Because you're right, if someone was reli- very religious and spent their, and had angels all over their house, you know, little statuettes, and and uh, that's that's kind of what their world was about, of course you'd expect them to see those things when they need them. Um but you, that's not that's not the story of your father. Now, as you started to look into this 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 topic and get stories from other people, did you find the same thing? Did did this uh, disconnect between people who are religious and people who may be seeing things like angels? Did it did it continue throughout the stories that you were hearing? Yes, yes, absolutely. And of course, there were people who were religious and spiritual. Who you know, one um, my dental hygienist actually described to me how her grandmother saw a big yellow bus full of angels, right? Well, her grandmother was one of those people who, you know, read the Bible every day. So, you know, mm-hmm. she would have expected to hear that from her. So you you hear both. Right. You, know, you definitely hear both. But, for example, most of us are, aren't expecting to be talking about a trip as we die, right, as people are dying. That's not... I mean, I think it's become more mainstream that that happens, that people are talking about it. But um, in the book, Final Gifts by Maggie Callahan and Patricia Kelly, who are hospice nurses, they talked about how their patients um, would talk in metaphors. And I also found that with the Final Words Project. And one of the most common metaphors is that there's some kind of trip going on. And the most, you know, maybe the most common thing you see in samples and across languages, I'm seeing it now in other languages, People are talking about some form of transportation. So the woman whose grandma talked about the bus full of angels, well, we may have expected grandma to talk about angels, right, if she was a religious person. But what are those angels doing in a bus? Right. (laughs) (laughs) And, and, And why are those, you know, angels or whatever appearing in buses when people talk about dying, yeah, uh, we, we, all, we all we all we all we all know angels don't take public transportation. I mean, that's just common <laughs> knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, you're catching my drift here. <laughs> you know, the transportation angle is interesting to me for another reason, and I've shared this story with my audience before. But my mother used to tell me a story uh, about when she was a very young girl, and her grandmother passed away. And she didn't wasn't aware that her grandmother passed away at this point, but she had a dream the night her grandmother passed away. And mm-hmm. the dream was mm-hmm. that her grandmother met her at a train station ah. and was going on a trip on a train. And mm-hmm. my mother kept saying, I want to go with you. I want to go with you. And the grandmother mm-hmm. was saying, you can't come with me. It's not your time to go or not your time mm-hmm. to travel, whatever it was. But again, that's that transportation thing. And this was in my mother's dream having a dream about her grandmother who died that night and she didn't realize it. Um, That's, that's an interesting connection. I think it's a very interesting connection and, and not to take away from the uniqueness of your story, but I've heard this from other people who have had dreams involving train stations about someone they loved as they were dying. And so, you know, it's just, um, and you look way back, you know, over time, and around the world, you know, the images of the, the you know, taking on, on the, I'm just blinking on the word, you know, the river sticks, that would be, you know, where the canoe is going yep. across yep. and t- ferrying the dead. So, you know, these are images that seem to have been with us for, 
for centuries and also around the globe. And and that's one of the most common things. And trains show up a lot. Trains, buses, um, uh, planes. Uh, yeah, and they show up very commonly. Um, now, my dad loved to gamble. He was a big, big gambler. So he said to my mother, well, I guess we're going to take that big trip to Las Vegas. Right? Of course, he's not going to heaven. He's going to Las Vegas. <laughs> we're taking that big <laughs> My dad. We're going to take that big trip to Las Vegas, so we better get the oxygen tank ready for the trip. <laughs> right? Wow. Right? Yeah. That's right? So he, he didn't really have a form of transportation, but um, m- many, many people do. Many people. Or they talk about their passports. I need my passport. Oh, daddy. You know, people don't know it's a metaphor. Daddy, you're sick. Where are you going? No, I need my passport. I got to get get to that other country. Daddy, I don't know what you're talking about. No, I need my passport. You know, and and when Chaplin was explaining to me when she had um, someone say that to her, she was like, oh, yes, we'll get your passport. Just hold on. I'm going to get it for you now. You know, and just talk to the person and comfort them and let them know that, you know, everything's getting ready for their big trip. And and I'll, I'll share another anecdote with you. And I know we're going to talk about terminal lucidity a little bit later in our discussion, so I don't want to get into that. But this probably is an example of it, I would say. My grandfather, just before he passed away, and he was he was bedridden for a few weeks before he died on morphine, really wasn't mm-hmm. talking at all or really responding to my was You know, was basically asleep for days. And mm-hmm. just before he passed away... He stood up out of bed oh, and said, it's, it's time to go. I got to go. As though he mm. was going to rush out to the store and then just collapsed into a chair and died. Mm. And again, it's a, kind it, of that trip thing. It was kind of a, you know, like he was, he had to, he was going somewhere and he had to go right then. Yep. And, you know, again, another great, great story you're telling or account you're sharing with us. And one that is not that uncommon. Oh, someone, hold on. I'm sorry. I don't know. Was that you? I heard a knock, but oh. I'm going to let it go. Let's keep talking. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, but no, the, very common. And what you said, the, the thing about the travel, and you know, people, you know, people who are completely disabled. I mean, they're close to death, and um, right before they die. Apparently, the medical explanation is there's a surge of adrenaline before people die. I guess the body somehow releases this adrenaline to the body, uh, is my understanding. And so people might stand up for the first time uh, in a long time and so forth. Um, And there are many, many stories of this. People get out of bed and they insist that they're going to walk on their own to, to somewhere. So... Yeah, and it's really amazing when you hear, you know, when I hear your story and as many of these stories I've heard, I they haven't lost their wonder to me. I just I think it's so remarkable. As you were getting these stories, obviously you were you were I assume asking for final words. You were asking for people to share their stories of what what those who were near death were saying. Um that doesn't necessarily mean they would they would share with you what they were seeing, but did those do those things go hand in hand and did you find that it was very common for a story that was shared with you about somebody saying something was connected to a story about them seeing figures? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, or landscapes. 
landscapes are also described. And one of the things we, we've heard from people who have near-death experiences is that they often describe how beautiful it is and that there are these very lush landscapes. And often those, again, who have died and come back to report tell us that um, on the, quote, other side or, you know, the afterlife, however you want to think of it, the colors are very bright, like high-definition you know, just the, the reds are very red and the blues are very blue. And it seems like, not always, but in some cases as people are dying, they're describing these really amazing landscapes. One father was describing to his daughters how he pointed to the hospital, like a storage door, you know, in his room, a very, you know, just a boring door, but was talking about these beautiful colors and how he couldn't wait to walk through the door, but he was trying to decide which door to walk through. And um, so people definitely see things, and they see different figures. Some people see pre-deceased relatives. Others will see these figures that no one in the family can really identify. You know, um, one father described to his daughter that there was some kind of boxing champion from France who she didn't know who it was. Mm. Um, And then that same father said to his daughter, oh, my God, the butterflies, the butterflies coming out of your mouth are so beautiful. Wow. (laughs) Um, What about religion? As you collected this information and heard people's stories, did you find any differences between the types of things people would say or see based on their religious uh, backgrounds? Um, I wouldn't say significantly so, but some, in some cases, like the bus full of angels. Um, I think I had maybe two people um, talk about seeing Jesus um, or that Jesus was calling um, but people more, and this also seems to uh, echo what happens with the near-death experience, people more often talk about it being beautiful or describing light. You know, many times people have near-death experiences, they talk about the being of light. They describe God as, as a light. And, of course, people do see Jesus, so describe seeing Jesus. Um, I haven't heard anybody talk about Buddha or, or other religious figures. So I wouldn't say it's the most predominant thing that appears, but it has appeared. A couple of people saw men in black um, uh, as they were dying. You know, these guys kind of in black suits around them, which I guess that makes sense. It's kind of like the Grim Reaper. Lisa, my mother um, saw oh, a man yeah. in a black suit. She saw him from days uh, standing in the corner of a room, according to her. Had a hat on, uh-huh. had a hat on, man in a black suit. She kept asking me who he was. And oh of course, of course, I didn't know, and I didn't see him. Um, but I kept asking her what she, you know, what she saw, and uh, it was it was several days in a row she saw this man in a black suit standing in the corner. Isn't that see? And what? Who the heck are these men in black suits? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's it's really it's. I mean, it's incredible that you share that story, also because that's something I've heard in other transcripts, and it's also wonderful that you had the presence of mind and the comfort in this situation to ask your mother about it. You know, so many people get afraid and, and, and um, yeah. And I wish I had asked my dad more about his angels. Did she tell you any more about him? I'm curious now. No, no, it was basically Ah. just, she kept asking me, who's the man, who's the man standing in the corner in the black suit. And and I'd ask her to describe, and basically all she could describe was a hat and a, and a dark suit. And she didn't know who it was. 
and uh, she didn't seem afraid. She didn't seem bothered. She just wanted to know who it was, and you know. <laughs> Was she lucid enough to know that she was having a vision or did she actually think it was, you know, what was her sense of, because some people are like, oh my God, there's, you know, there's my ex-husband, you know, or my husband who passed away. You know, they can go back and forth between the two realities and some people get more kind of lost in the ultimate reality. What yeah, was she, like? she was um she was suffering from she had liver disease and I don't know how oh, much you know sorry. about liver disease but you know she was in she was we were waiting for a transplant for a very long time and at a point oh, we realized it wasn't coming. And um she uh she, when you have liver disease, your liver doesn't filter out toxins in your blood obviously. And one of the effects of that is it makes it it, it makes you uh, hallucinate. It makes you do weird yeah. things. Um, so in order to combat that, they put you on some medications which make you sleep a lot. So she would come in and out of these, yeah. uh, you know, long sleeping episodes, and that's when she would talk to us and and she would see, you know, have have some of these things. And she saw angels. She saw the man in black in the corner. She also, and I'll, I'm going to share this, and this is very very personal and a little scary because she, we had her at a uh, a re- re- rehab facility in New York City. And we're f- we're in upstate, four hours from the city, but we had to put her in this special facility for a while. And one day I got a call from the hospital and um, they said, your mother is telling us that she was assaulted by a man in a white suit. Mm. And, you know, and they went through this whole thing. Well, they have video. She was never assaulted. This, you know, that didn't physically happen, but she mm. swore up and down that a man in a white suit assaulted her. Mm-hmm. And wow. I can only assume this was another one of these visions she was having. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, it was scary to us. We had the police involved. It was, it was a real ordeal. Oh, wow. But, um, so I, yeah. I guess my next question is, as you learn about this stuff, I mean, we have a man in a black suit standing in the corner harmless. And then I have a story about a man in a white suit who supposedly, wow. according to my mother, attacked her. Do we know anything mm-hmm. about maybe fallen angels or, or, or maybe more nefarious beings that might, uh, actually enter a, a, a room and, and do something, whether it's assault or otherwise influence somebody who's near death. Do you, do we have anything that, that helps explain any of that? Yeah. I, you know, I don't, I tend to, cause I feel like it's way beyond my pay grade. <laughs> yeah, it's, know, it's, I mean, it, 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 yeah. So I, yeah, I just don't know. I mean, some people have ideas about these things, but yeah, yeah. Say more. I'm sorry, I didn't interrupt you. No, no, that's okay. I just I've, I've been curious about about that for a long time, and we actually had somebody yeah. in our chat room ask about fallen angels if they're demonic. And I know this this takes this whole conversation many steps down the road from where we're, we are talking <laughs> about it. But it is it is fascinating. And one of the other things I saw through your comments is this idea that people who are near death may see people gathering for a party. There's a, there's a lot of times a party involved, yes, isn't there? Very common. Yes. In the near-death experience that happens, and then in several of my uh, the transcripts I, received, I gathered, people talk about some kind of party. And one of my favorite stories comes from a minister, and he was describing one of his congregants who was maybe three or four days um, before she died, and she could, many people, be, right before they died, can't write very well. Um, but she was able to at least hold a pencil and write a little bit. 
And so he came by and he said, you know, um, what are you, what are you writing there? And she said, oh, I'm writing down all the people I'm inviting to the big party, you know, to the big party. And he said, oh, there's a party coming. Oh, yeah, there's a big party. And that's another thing that's common before people die. They make an announcement that some kind of big event is coming. Like my dad announced the big art show. Right. Um, oftentimes, like you said, a party is one among the things people might talk about. Anyway, so this person was writing it down and, the minister looked over and noticed that all the names were congregants' names he had seen before and knew, and they were all dead. Oh, <laughs> they wow. had all died before. Wow. Yeah, so that that was a really very compelling moment to him. Thank you for being here with us tonight. If you're listening on the live YouTube stream, thank you for doing that. Please subscribe. If you're listening to the podcast version of the show, find us on YouTube because it's a great way to participate in a live chat room as well when the show is live. Just go to YouTube, search for J.V. Johnson. You'll find it pretty easily. There's also about, I know, I guess we have to be approaching about 600, 600 back episodes of the program on our YouTube channel. All there for your viewing enjoyment and listening, all that stuff. Um, But we appreciate you listening no matter which way you are listening. So tonight's guest is Lisa Smart, founder of the Final Words Project. We're talking about that, plus her book, which is called Words at the Threshold, What We Say as We're Nearing Death. Lisa, tell us a little bit more about your relationship with Dr. Moody and how that got started, because it's it's kind of an important part of all of this. Yeah, it's... um... He's still such a, a dear friend as well as sort of a colleague and, and co-worker. Um, how it all began is, that of course, uh, as my father went through this process of dying and I became really curious about what I had witnessed, right after my father passed away, I went up, um, he lived in, at Berkeley, and I went to UC Berkeley. That's where I, I got my training in linguistics. So after he passed on, I went up to um, the university to just, take a look at the kind of research that had been done, because I had assumed at the time that this was something that had already been studied. You know, it seemed, you know, as a linguist, I did a lot of reading on articles about how children acquire language. So I just sort of made the assumption that um, there must have been research on how, what happens to language when people die, right? The opposite side of the life spectrum. Well, I went and I looked at all the databases and I was absolutely blown away that there was nothing about the linguistics of final words or, you know, the patterns. So I, I, I became obsessed. I mean, I had a great job. I had a really good job. And all I wanted to do, though, was just abandon everything and, and do this research. I, I just, I mean, I hate to use the word obsessed. It's kind of, but, you know, I just became, I mean, that's the only word I can think of now is I became obsessed. And, um, so what happened is I just started reading everything. And when I was 17, I read Raymond Moody's Life After Life, and that's the book where he coined the term near-death experience. And I remember when I read it when I was 17, you know, my mouth dropped open, and I was like, wow, this is amazing. Well, it happened that I, um, I, I went to synagogue with my mother about three weeks after my dad died, and a friend of hers came up and asked how, I, you know, how we were doing, and um, then I explained that I had become sort of obsessed with the final words my dad spoke, and I wanted to learn more about what people say as they were dying. And my this gentleman said, you know, I'm going to be teaching a course with Raymond Moody in Alabama in a couple weeks. Why Why don't you just come and meet him? You know, take the course. And and it was I think it was $2,000 for the week, which for me, and I, I was like, ah, that's pretty steep. 
Well, it turned out two days later, my tax refund came <laughs> for just about that amount. I decided, you know what? I'm going to just go. So I went and the, and I was first just totally struck by this man. I don't know if you've ever seen Raymond Moody in person, but he's very humble. You know, came in with his tennis shoes and a striped shirt. I don't know. He just seemed very humble and sweet. I was expecting, I don't know. I don't know what I, I just didn't expect him to be that sweet and humble. And the fourth day of that seminar, he started talking about his interest in final words and his interest in language and that he had been looking for a linguist who might want to do research with him on final words. And I was completely blown away to hear that. And I went up to him afterwards and I said, I would love to work with you on this. And I came back home and he said, great. And um, I came back home and I had my dear husband at the time said, go for it. He was semi-retired, so he was in a position to just, you know, pick up and leave. And my wonderful daughter, um, who was just starting college, also said, it's okay, Mom, I just go for it. So we moved to Georgia, and uh, and I just started visiting with Raymond, and we started um, collecting the data and talking about it. And, you know, many people know that Raymond Moody is an MD, and... Um, and that, you know, he was working with cardiac uh, patients when he coined the term near-death experience. But he also has a Ph.D. in philosophy. And his interest was language. And um, he just had a book come out about a month ago um, about nonsense, about nonsense, and a really, really fascinating look at, at uh, nonsense and unintelligible language. So Raymond and I, I moved out to the southeast from California, and uh, for all these years, Raymond and I have been just uh, not only researching your death experiences, but right, I mean, I'm sorry, final words, but now we're writing a book together called God is Bigger Than the Bible, and it's um, it, that phrase comes from one of the near-death experiencers who, you know, so we're looking at how people describe God. Um, who have had after death, you know, after life experiences. Wow. So we're, we're, yeah. Yeah, that's that's a great story. Tell us about when you started to collect the information for the um, final words project and the book "Words at the Threshold." How how did you how did you gather these stories and these words? Uh, slowly and painfully. <laughs> it was really <laughs> hard at first. At first, I thought, "Gosh, well, you know, I'm working with Raymond Moody. That'll be like an entree, you know that." But actually, it, it wasn't. Um, and so, you know, many hospices, you know, the first thought was going, going to hospices because that you know, I thought that would be one place. And they're very protective, understandably, of their patient, you know, their patients sure, and yeah. the people who are there. So I just, I, I encountered one door closed and, you know, I just, one door after another closed, uh, I hate to say in my face, but, you know, just. Um, I wasn't able to get make the connections. And then, you know, there were a lot of issues about the ethical concern. People were just, you know, we don't feel like... Because at first, I was thinking, oh, I want to walk in there with a digital recorder. Because that's what linguists do, right? They take these recorders. So I first had this image. I was going to bring these recorders and put them at people's bedsides and get, you know, and they would be voice activated. But then, you know, a lot of people really had an objection to that. And as I heard their objections, I remembered what happened with my grandmother. When my grandmother was dying, 
she called me into her room, and she was pretty lucid, you know, just uh, soon before she died. And uh, she said, you know, Lisa, um, you were the first grandchild, and I just want to say that uh, you were my favorite. You were my favorite. And, you know, we had so much in common. And, um, you know, you were became a teacher. We both loved chocolate. We're both a little chubby, you know, da 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 And you were always my favorite. And I was, I, I just, ugh, I, I said, oh, great. I'm grandma's favorite. Well, six months later, I was walking with my two cousins. And guess what? <laughs> she told each of them on her deathbed that they were her favorites, right? So one of the things I thought about is that those deathbed conversations are very sacred and very, very private and very personal. So as I was collecting the data, I realized, and I had learned this from the wonderful people in hospice, um, you know, that really it's such a sacred time that having a tape recorder or a recorder is just just not the right thing. So what I thought of doing um, with the help of a nurse who I had a great conversation with, she said, how can you collect data in a way that's healing to people? And so what I realized that really the way to go is to invite families and loved ones to um, keep a final words journal near the bed and only share with me what they want to. So, you know, in that way, definitely the data is skewed. I mean, I'm the first to say it. But um, but that's how I did it. So people just shared the transcripts. And then, of course, I interviewed a lot of healthcare professionals and you know, heard from them what patterns they saw, and they were very clear patterns. Um, so I kind of, you know, I got the data from the participants, mostly families, and then I got the uh, stories and information from healthcare providers and and saw a lot of um, overlap in, in what people were saying. I'm going to get the line of questioning back on track to the process and the, the data, if you want to call it that, in a second. But I want sure. to ask you your opinion, though. Based on what you experienced with your father and then based on what you've heard from other people's stories, when... Your father saw angels, or the the woman that you spoke of who saw the the busload of angels, or other people that have seen what they would call angels. Mm-hmm. Do you think they're seeing angels? Um, yes, I do now. I do. I mean, what else are they? I I, I don't. I mean, we could say it's their imagination, but then what is the imagination? You know, what is imagination then? Right. Right, it's an image. So, I mean, we know the imagination is powerful. Some of the most amazing things in, in human, you know, all the all these great inventions began as e- images or imagination. So, I guess what I'm saying is, I think the imagination is very powerful. If that's all it is, but I do believe, yes, I do, I do, and I think it has to do more with the energy fields and that we impose images of angels on things like, you know, some people might see a beautiful balloon and not an angel, but it has the same energy that an angel has. So, um, I'm trying to say that more clearly. It's more, you know, the energetic experience of it is something uplifting and beautiful. And we are trained to think of something uplifting and beautiful as an angel. So it may not, be quite the way we think of angels. Be, and angels may have different faces and different ways to materialize. 
but I I do. I'm I'm answering it long winded. Yeah, I well, it's a hard it's a hard so. thing. It's a hard thing to. I don't know if admit to is the right way to put it, but it's a hard thing to accept, I yeah. guess. I mean, it's it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing to accept, but it's a hard thing to accept. Uh, and if my mother uh, did not, my mother talking about angels wouldn't have surprised me, but there's no reason mm-hmm. my mother would have talked about a man in a, a man in black in her in the corner of her room. She had nothing in her life that would have that would have made her think that way if it was something that she was hallucinating. And my mother had a lot of people that predeceased her visit her. And I'm curious about this with your experience and the stories that you've heard. My my father uh, predeceased her by by three years. He was not one of them that she saw. Mm-hmm. She saw a lot mm-hmm. of people, but not my father. Oh my goodness! You know, it's such a mystery. It's such a mystery. I mean, the same thing near death experiences report. You know, oftentimes when people die and then come back, they'll explain that there was a tunnel of light or some kind of well, a tunnel or a corridor of some kind. And in the beginning of the corridor and throughout it, and definitely at the end of that tunnel or corridor of light, there are often predeceased relatives um, as well as other figures of some type. And who knows why? You know, sometimes Uncle Joe is just not there, but your three pets are. You know, people report seeing their pets yeah. or their dog, you know. You know, so how come how come Uncle Joe didn't come to greet you, but you know, Snooky did? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I I don't know. And oh my goodness, I mean I I have no idea. But but what you're saying is true is um, there's inconsistency, or even if you believe in mediums or psych- psychics, and I'm, my mind is open about it. I'm, I'm, let's just say it, my mind is open, but I've heard, you know, certain people report with mediums. Well, let me even give you a better example than mediums. Raymond uses something called a psychomantium, which is based on the oracles of the dead, where people can go in and have these experiences of seeing apparitions. And, um, why do some people go in really wanting to see, let's say, their uncle again, but who they see is their grandmother, right? Why does that happen? I, I just don't know. Boy, there's so much to research. Yeah, there is. And you've uh, collected and analyzed, what, over 2,000, you said, of these end of words? Sentences. Yeah, yeah. So utter, I call them utterances because some of them are more like phrases, but, but units of meaning, I guess. But yeah, about 2,000. <laughs> And, and you and you've noticed some patterns and some common threads. What would you say the mo- are the most obvious? Well, the most obvious is some of the ones that we just talked about. The metaphor, you know, these different kind of metaphors, and people talk about metaphors that are close to their lives. So, for example, um, so first of the, there's a metaphor of the trip, and then there's a metaphor that something big is coming. And when they announce some kind of big event, I call it a mom- momentous metaphor, a momentous event, it usually has to do with something they love, you know, so I love to go dancing. So there's a good chance when I'm on my deathbed, I'm going to be one of those people who announce the big dance. I, I am not a golfer, so I am not going to talk about the golf tournament that's coming, <laughs> but someone who's a golfer is, is, is going to talk about the golf tournament, perhaps. Or um, one, one sample I love is a, fa- a father was a contractor, and he loved his work. He just loved his work. And so when the daughter came and said, how are you doing, Daddy? And he started talking about what he was seeing, kind of this landscape he was seeing. He said, oh, my, there are kitchenettes. There's so many kitchenettes that need remodeling. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
the metaphors he used for that other place to where he was going with this big event was connected with the remodeling process. One woman's grandfather talked about the big poker game, and these folks were waiting for him to be the fourth hand in the poker game. So, yeah, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, So people tend to use the metaphors that are closely related to who they were, uh, you know, in their lives. You mentioned early in our discussion tonight that, uh, you know, there are a lot of what we would call quotes of famous people and their last words, and many of them seem to be a little bit uh, dramatized, if not completely fictional. But there are some that are fairly substantial or substantiated. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's, mm-hmm. let's talk about a few of those because I find them interesting. I know you, you reference a few. Mm-hmm. Um, well, of course, I love Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple Computer. Um, oh, wow. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. If you think, oh, what is he? What did he see? Yeah, it kind of sends um, chills down yeah. my spine. Me too. I mean, every time I say it, I'm still thinking, what was this man? What was he seeing? You know? And the other thing, too, is most of us think of death as something really scary and horrible. But, and, and you know, I don't mean to sugarcoat it because, you know, some people do have difficult deaths. There's no doubt about sure. it. But most of the samples, and many of them, you know, have these kinds of statements of wonder. Um, wonder and, so, and yeah. relief almost in a way. Um, wonder, acceptance and relief and, and welcoming in some cases. Absolutely. No, absolutely. And that's like one of my favorites. And I've really done research to see if this is the real deal because I really like it. From Bach was don't cry for me for I go where music is born. And, um, you know, I'd like to think that he actually really said that. Because, yeah. you know, I think there's that sense of wonder and going somewhere better. Wow. The one that uh, you've quoted from Sam Kinison is also rather interesting. Yeah. Oh, um, let's see. I, I want to make sure I have it totally accurate. Um, I'm going to read it to you just so I have everything accurate. Comedian Sam Kinison, who died in a head-on collision in 1992, said to no one in particular, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. But then there was a pause as if Kinniston were listening to someone. Then he asked, but why? And after another pause, oh, okay. Okay. A friend who was with him said, whatever voice was talking to him gave him the right answer. And he just relaxed with it. Wow. (laughs) And again, you wonder who was guiding him, counseling him, easing his mind, and holding his hand through the process. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yes. And those kinds of comments I, I hear, I've heard, is not uncommon that people get that kind of, um, it's almost a reassurance from some voice that obviously we, we don't hear and we don't know about. And the near-death experiencers. You know, they describe how what happens is that there's this barrier. You know, they, they leave their body. They hear the doctor or someone say, oh, my God, we've lost them. Or it's just some, you know, they know that they've died. And then they go above their bodies, and then they move oftentimes into um, some kind of tunnel. They see a light, and they see what, you know, some kind of version of how they would describe God. 
And then they have a life review where they review their lives and what they've done and what, you know, the, the ways that they've caused pain to others and the things that they've done that were, were good and were helpful. And then there's a point where there's a decision to be made. And oftentimes there's a physical barrier, like a mountain range or a river or something like that. And it's either they go and they usually get information from the being of light or they kind of negotiate with the being of light or what some people call God. And it's, it's that, you know, um, is it time to go? Sometimes God will say, no, you can't go, because a lot of people describe it feels so good in the afterlife. Yeah. It's very comforting. They don't want to come back, but God might say, you need to come back. You've got more work to do. Or sometimes the person will think, you know what, I want to go back home to be with my kids. I want, And they say home, you know, meaning back to earth. Or I want to go back and, and see my family or whatever. So there's this point where there's a sort of decision, kind of in the Kinison example, where, you know, somehow there's this negotiation or kind of conversation that goes on with the being of light, or um, sometimes people describe there's a council of beings that they talk to about whether they should come back or not. And um, it's, it seems to be very much a part of the dying process when, when there are accidents and circumstances like this about, you know, do I want to go back or do I need to go back or do I need to go? One, one story that was really moving to me, another example, a minister told me, you know, and he did not believe in reincarnation at all, but he described how he had a 21-year-old congregant who um, was tragically dying of, I think it was brain cancer, um, Maybe not because he was relatively lucid, but some kind of tragic cancer. And his final words were, um, he was talking just like Keniston to someone, and he said, oh, okay, okay, just 21 years this time. Okay, just 21 years this Oh, wow. Time. Yeah, and the minister thought, you know, it, it, made, it made him question his own belief system because he thought, hmm, that's interesting. I have to ask you this just because of the times we're living in. Oh, man. You know, obviously, we're, we're experiencing something that we haven't experienced before with this virus, and, and a lot of people are dying. Yeah. Have you noticed any difference between people, the words that people may use if they're dying from an illness versus uh, Sam Kinison's case, he died in a car crash, or um, maybe some things that people say, and they don't, you know, they're not in a terminal situation, but they die shortly thereafter. Are there any patterns or differences among those things? Yeah, so um, let me make sure I understand your question. So there are certain, you know, for example, when people are in the dying process and it's not an accident, you'll see kind of a lead-up to their dying. I call that's another thing that I found in the research. I call them sustained narratives because there are these stories that go over a period of days or weeks where people are kind of telling a story. So, of course, if someone has an accident and they're just alive, you don't see them telling some kind of, you know, it's just like they're alive and have regular consciousness and then boom, and then they're confronted with death or dying. And so often in those cases, you'll just see some kind of discussion about uh, predeceased relatives or some kind of conversation like Kinison maybe, or something to say to their loved ones, you know, tell my daughter or whatever, you know, words that go back to their families before they go. With the terminal cases, you know, where they're over a period of days or weeks, these sustained narratives, someone might say something like maybe three weeks before they die, 
Yeah, the train's having some trouble. The train's having some trouble. So you sit next to Grandma, and you hear her saying, you know, the train's having some trouble, and you're thinking, oh, boy, that morphine, you know, Grandma's really out of it. But if you write that down, March 23rd, she says this, and then you come back the next day, and then she starts saying, yeah, but I think the mechanic's coming for the train. And if you write these things over time, you'll see this progression and then suddenly, three days before Grandma dies, she's like, yeah, the train's going pretty well now. I think it's going to come and get me at the station. I've got everything packed up. Now all I need is my passport, right? So you look over time, and what's so amazing is in isolation, these phrases just seem like sheer nonsense and like people are just hallucinating or being crazy. But if you actually look over time, there's this narrative that takes place that makes sense. Well, of course, when someone has an accident, you're not going to see that kind of evolution. Right, right. right. Um, and then what was the other thing you had asked? Well, I mean, this is this, about- is this is probably near, nearly impossible, but I just didn't, maybe it's come up in your research, is that, you know, there are, there are people who don't expect to die, and they do, whether it's, mm-hmm. you know, from a heart attack or whatever it happens to be, they died suddenly. Yeah. Has anybody ever noticed any things that people who experience that may have said that in retrospect you go back and say, hmm, that was odd, but now it makes sense? Absolutely. Uh, yes. I can't tell you how many times, you know, sort of the classic thing where someone says, um, I don't, you know, someone's mother just says, I'm not too sure why, but I'm just feeling like I need to take care of my will today or, you know, something, or, or I just want to make sure I see Uncle Bill tomorrow or, you know, people will, will have these impulses to do certain things that then when they die, they turn out to be very important ways of, of um, making closure. But one story, which was really, really tragic, and um, there was this young woman, she was 17, and you know, um, I don't know, they're like magnetic letters, not the letters, but words for doing poetry. Oh, yeah, sure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So this young girl... Um, young woman was very talented and so she um, wrote on the refrigerator and I mean I probably don't have the right phrasing but basically something about I'm you know I'm going to infinity beautiful infinity or something something like that um, and she just put it on the refrigerator and then she went off in her car to go visit her boyfriend and there was no and and while she was driving a drunk driver you know hit her and um, and she died. And when the mother looked back at what she had left on the refrigerator, it seemed clearly like it was some kind of premonition. Wow. So, and there are many stories like that. And and it's 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 kind of a mystery because it seems that we seem to know um, very often before we die, even if we're not in the active dying process. Yeah, I mean, I, I would have to think that, um, you know, people who are terminally ill, who whose dying process is a bit extended, uh, probably are in more need of comfort. And maybe that's why they have these these visitations, mm. if you will, and, and mm. these interactions more obviously than someone. I mean, because someone who, who dies suddenly, if there are angels and if there is a grand scheme, those angels in that mm-hmm. grand scheme know that that person's going to die, even though that person mm-hmm. doesn't. So it seems like... If it wasn't for the comforting factor, they would make those appearances as well for those folks. So it's it's a little bit strange there. I'm I'm very curious about about the differences, but um, mm-hmm. it's it's That's uh, a really great question. Yeah, I mean the whole th- the whole thing is is uh, this whole topic is so intriguing, and 
one of the things that you must frustrate you a little bit is that uh, you can only do so much research in these stories. You can only, like you said, you can't bring a recorder in to someone's bedside. It's just not ethical. Um, So you're relying on people coming to you with the stories. If if any of our listeners had stories to share with you, how would they do that? That would be great. Um, come go to my website, finalwordsproject.org, and I have a tab that says share your story. And um, I do ask about medications and so forth. It's you know I mean just so you know I mean it's a form you give your consent and it, it shouldn't take that long. For most people, I think it takes ten to fifteen minutes to share their story. And um, uh, and yes, it'd be that's how I'm collecting most of my data these days. We have a, um, a listener in our chat room that has said something that is a little concerning, and I want your take on it. She, mm. this, this is Ivana, and she says, My father passed away about six months ago, and I was with him at the time mm. of his passing, but it didn't feel as though he passed peacefully. I oh. got the feeling that he didn't like what he was seeing or who was there mm-hmm. to help him. It wasn't mm-hmm. very comforting. Have you experienced that as well? Have people t- shared stories where there was actually, it wasn't a comforting experience for the person yeah. passing? It was actually yeah, just that- the opposite. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, it's a smaller percentage of the sample, much smaller. And I think part of what happens is that, you know, those are the story, and this is where my research is admittedly skewed. Those are the stories people don't want to share. Right. You want to call up a researcher and say, my dad had this horrible, horrible day. You know, you don't. Yeah, that's right. But there are definitely, I mean, you hear people saying things like, you know, help me, or, you know, I'm so scared. Definitely that occurs. And yeah, and it, it's and and I don't know that we really know why that happens. Wow. Um, and for some people, it's you know, my dad was terrified of death, had a very beautiful and tender death, and I'm sure there are many reasons why. And I'm really, my heart goes out to her. I'm really sorry. Tell us about term. Tell us about terminal lucidity. I mentioned it when I told the story about my grandfather standing up right before he died. He'd been bedridden, stood up and said, "I have to go. I have to go," and then died. Tell us about terminal lucidity and what you found about it. Um, it's one of the great mysteries that's finally being researched in more detail. As we speak right now, there's a major research project taking place. And what it is, is right before people die, oftentimes, you know, a few days um, before people die, they start being kind of unresponsive. And then, out of the blue, people will suddenly be more alert, you know, maybe get out of bed or start talking. And oftentimes people think, oh, my God, they've they've recovered, you know, and there'll be this small window of time, you know, the term lucidity, where they're clear again and and their speech is clear and their thoughts are clear. And oftentimes people want to eat during these times. You know, they may have gone weeks without eating or, or, you know, eating very little and like my dad wanted pot roast and upside down pineapple cake two <laughs> days before he died, <laughs> you know. And 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 my I remember my um, husband's father wanted a beer, right? So there's this kind of all of a sudden they also call it the sunset day. You know how right before the sunset there's this period of big of kind of like this illumination in the sky. It's that idea, and people will say the most remarkable things. Um, for example, something like. One woman was in a coma, and she got up, and she looked at her family and said, it's not what you think. Or um, Hmm. someone else said, tell everyone I'm okay and that I love them. Um, And in one case, the most dramatic case I had of this, his mother had Alzheimer's, 
So they hadn't had a really lucid conversation in several years. And then she went to a coma. And three days before she died, she got up kind of, you know, with the same kind of energy you described about um, your family. It was your family member, right? Yeah, it was my grandfather, yeah. Your your grandfather. But um, so this gentleman described how his mother turned to him and said, okay, Alzheimer's and coming out of a coma, says, John, I want to make sure you have everything you need to get our finances in order. And she described how, you know, the third drawer down in her study were all the files. And I can attest for John because he was a volunteer at a literacy program I ran. I knew him for years. This was not a made-up story. <laughs> you know, wow. as incredible as it sounds. And, so, and, and this, and John, yeah. John's, you said mother, she was Alzheimer patient and, and had been in a coma? Mm-hmm. And then came out and just lucidly described where he could find. This tells me, this tells me, and I'm just going to uh, go out on a limb here a little bit, but this mm-hmm. tells me that, you know, as the body is failing, that there's a there's a spiritual consciousness that may take over mm-hmm. at, at that moment to offer that information that isn't necessarily coming from the synapses of the brain because the brain is damaged. Um, I find that interesting. Me too. And it seems that, you know, when I look at the examples of terminal lucidity, it's always, um, you know, words of love and forgiveness or words of counsel or guidance. It's never angry words. You know, so it definitely seems like it's coming from another state of consciousness. And one of the things that we've found with people in comas and so forth, the more compromised a person's body is, the more they seem to have these sort of extraordinary transcendental experiences or transcendental awareness. So some with a coma whose body is not... The, the research I saw by Madeline Lawrence, who's a wonderful nurse and researcher, saw that people who are in coma, okay, their bodies were very compromised, and yet they were having these remarkable sort of um, ESP experiences, or telepathic, where they were knew what the doctors were thinking or knew about things going on in the hospital through this kind of from a different kind of awareness. And it does seem that when our bodies are more and more compromised, then a more spiritual how, how did you put it like consciousness spiritual consciousness yeah mm-hmm. it it really seems that way. And I mean, it seems that our bodies, um, you know, kind of ground, you know, prevent us from having that consciousness, more access to that consciousness. Yeah. yeah maybe, really maybe we need to make t-shirts up that say spiritual consciousness on them. What do you think? I like that. I'll take it. <laughs> <Let's>, you know, sadly, <laughs> I'll be your first customer. <laughs> sadly, um, you know, we're not only talking about uh, people that have lived a long life here at the end of mm-hmm. life. In some cases, it's children. Mm-hmm. Is there any difference between yeah. what you hear from children versus what you hear from those that have lived a full life? Um, you know, there, there really isn't, um, except it, oftentimes children are the ones who are comforting their family members. You know what I mean? Because they're, um, uh, you know, because of having experiences, and the parents, of course, are completely heartbroken. To me, that would be, I don't even want to think of the idea of, of anything happening to my daughter. Yeah, so, exactly. Um, it's, I think, you know, one of the most tragic losses. So, um, but they do, one, one story I have here is 
Soon after Joanne's passing, my daughter pointed to the bedroom ceiling and said, Mommy, look, look at all the birds. The next night, my daughter slept with me, and then in the middle of the night, there was a big thud as she fell into the floor. This was very unusual and woke me up with a start. I asked her what happened. She told me, I saw Jijo, that was the um, her, her other mother, she had two mothers, I saw Jijo on a ladder going up, and she was on the top, and I wanted to go with her, but she said, no, no, honey, you have to go back down. So that was a case where a child saw um, her other mother pass, you know, pass on. Then you have cases where the children themselves are, have passed on, and there was some one beautiful story, um, tragic and beautiful, where their child was asked relatives to bring her clothing for the baby she would have in heaven. Oh. Um, yeah. Um, so, and the kids, kids often talk about, in, in much more kind of vivid and innocent terms, one child described to her mother, it's okay, mommy, don't worry. It's okay, mommy, you know, I'm going to a beautiful place. I'm not scared at all, you know. So many times children offer their parents um that kind of reassurance we where and adults will do that also for their family members, but not as directly. Well, it's a horrible thing to think about. Sad. I know it's a horrible thing to think yeah. about. And yet what's amazing is oftentimes it's the children who are letting the parents know that it's, that it's okay. You know, that's okay. We have uh, just a few minutes left here. Uh, Obviously, many of the people listening, and I know personally have gone through these things, and many of us will go through them again. What kind of tips or advice do you have for people that uh, may be at at, at bedside when somebody is going through this process themselves? I think the first thing, you know, when we lose someone we love, it's, um, it's really scary in so many ways, especially since we don't see death very much in our lives. You know, it's very kind of separate from the fabric of our lives. So the first thing is, if it's possible, at least with the language, keep, you know, keep your mind open. And and if it's possible, imagine that actually something sacred is going on. You know, try to step into it with a sense of oh, the wonder for the sacred, I think. And, you know, into the world of the person who's dying, um, you know, listen to what they say, just like you did with your mom. It was your mom, right, with the black yeah, men? Yes, I mean, the, the, men the man in the black. black um, yep. You know, you you did what I think is just amazing. You just kept your presence of mind, and you were in conversation about those men in black. So enter into the world with them, just like you would with a child who might be seeing things that you don't see, like, you know, a giant rabbit or something. <laughs> And um, validate the person's words. You know, if they tell you they're angels, don't say, oh, come on, there are no angels. Or if they need a password, you know, know, so, um, and be a student of the language. You know, really write the words down and notice notice what what kind of patterns that are emerging. Ask questions. Oh, wow, a man in black. Tell me more about that. I want to know. And, um, And also assume your loved one hears you, even if they're not responsive. All the research shows that hearing is the very last sense to go, and to the very last moment, we can often hear things. So make sure that you're not arguing with your brother or sister about who's going to get the couch. <laughs> no. oh, keep those words 
kind and sacred. Final question, then we'll let you go. Has this changed your perception of death, the afterlife, and this and and our and our physical life as it is here on Earth over over this over the years that you've been studying this? Has it altered it? Completely, yeah, yeah. It has altered it. I mean, first because I've had the privilege of working closely with Raymond Moody, right? So I've heard from him about literally thousands of cases that he's, he's studied. So he's taught me a lot about that, and I've met now many near-death experiencers. But also the final words work. Yeah, I, you know, I was one of those people who was scared, scared to death to go on an airplane because, because um, you know, I was so scared of dying. And and you know, of course, I want to live as long as I can, and I don't want a painful death. But I, um, I am certain that something exists, or that there's a dimension right beside us. I don't know quite what it is. But I'm not afraid the way I used to be afraid. Now, I'm not going to jump out of, you know, an airplane tomorrow. <laughs> I'm not going to do anything crazy or reckless, but I'm not afraid, not at all. And I do believe, I believe in source or God or what, you know, a higher power <clears throat> in a way that I did not believe before. And it, and it makes life a lot more comforting. I have a lot more joy and comfort in my life now because of this research. Well, hopefully your words tonight have done that for others as well. Lisa, once again, let people know where they can get more information, maybe share a story with you and find your book. Yeah, that'd be great. Finalwordsproject.org, and there's a lot of great free information. I have a free excerpt from my book. And um, and it would be great, anyone who wants to leave their story or their account, uh, Raymond and I would be very, very grateful. Terrific. Thanks again for being here, and we look forward to yeah. having you back. You said you've, you're working on another book with uh, Raymond Moody, and when do you expect that to be published? Oh, you know, we don't even have a publisher for it. Oh. You know, we're, <laughs> we're just writing it, and then we're going to market it. So I think, um, you know, it could, be, it could be a year and a half to two years. So we're working on it. We're having a great time listening to what people, how they describe God for those who died and came back what they saw in the afterlife. Yeah, it sounds fascinating. We'll definitely have you back on when that book is ready to go. Again, thanks for being here tonight. Let's not make it, let's not let so much time pass in between the next, this one and the next one. Yeah, this is a great interview. You're a wonderful interviewer. Thank you so much. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.